after a long wait, Strucky Sports Talk is back. As always, I'm Colin Struckman, bringing you a brand new episode for the first time in a while. It's been a long time, been on hiatus for a while. I've had a lot going on, but I'm back to making episodes from now on. There will be one episode per week. The show is going to get better and better. I'll promise you that. I'm lining up some interviews for the podcast right now, and I'll have some other segments as well to spice things up along with Boston and college sports talk. There won't be an in-depth interview this week uh, with a special guest, but on today's show, we've got a preview of the Red Sox season, which is coming up shortly. We got a look ahead to the Final Four in the NCAA tournament as the Elite Eight wrapped up on Monday and Tuesday. And we got some talk about the Bruins and Celtics in a very critical point in both of their seasons. We've got a lot to talk about on my first episode back. It feels great to be back. So let's get started. All right, so we're going to start off this episode with a Red Sox season preview. The time is finally here. Opening day is finally here. It's one of my favorite sports days of the year. I could not be more excited about it. I even get excited when I'm able to watch spring training games. And when I see the Red Sox win spring training games, that somehow brings me happiness. But I've got butterflies in my stomach, even though it's probably going to be a rough year for the Red Sox. And we'll get into that in a bit. But I still just can't wait to sit down on my couch and relax and watch just almost every single game on Nesson. Listen to my guys, my guys, Dave O'Brien, Jerry Remy, and Dennis Eckersley call the games on Nesson. I am beyond ready for baseball to be back. You can feel it in the air. The spring has sprung here in New England. It's time for Boston's Boys of Summer to take over. The Red Sox are the team that runs Boston here in the summer. So let's look ahead to the 2021 Red Sox season. The Red Sox do begin their season this Thursday, April 1st at Fenway Park. There will be fans in the stands at Fenway, which is great to see. They get set to take on the Baltimore Orioles for a three-game set. It's amazing to have baseball back, and it's awesome that we can have a full 162 this year, especially because the MLB had to resort to a shortened 62 or 60-game season rather in the first couple of months of the pandemic. So it's great to get a full season in this year. So we're going to break down this preview into four different parts. We're going to start out with the additions to this team. We got a couple new members. We won't go over all of them, but pretty much the the primary ones we will go over. And then the subtractions, which there were some key losses for the Red Sox, obviously. Uh, I'll give my predictions and opinions on this team, and then we'll end off with the potential lineup in the starting rotation. So let's start out with the additions. The Sox have had quite the offseason. There's been a lot of good and bad, but I'll break down the the good offseason moves that general manager Heimblum made and what this team is going to look like this season. I I could easily start with what this team lost. We know they lost JBJ and Benintendi. Those were the big losses, but let's start out on a good note, not a bad note. So let's get into the key additions that Heimblum made to help this Red Sox team succeed this season. The main addition that stands out to me is probably Kike Hernandez from the Dodgers. He's a utility guy. 
primarily plays second baseman, and I think he's going to be electric this season. I can't wait to watch him play. Marwin Gonzalez, another big one coming from Minnesota. He's a third baseman, so it brings a little competition between him and Devers. I know he can play first base as well, so Marwin's going to have a huge impact on the infield. And then we have Hunter Renfro, which is a guy I've really grown to love in spring training. He's coming from the Tampa Bay Rays and could be a right fielder, so it looks like he'll be playing the quirky outfield at Fenway Park this season. We also got Adam Adovino from the New York Yankees. He is a reliever. Did struggle a little bit in New York. Yankee fans don't love Adovino because he never really seemed to find his footing, but he's had a lot of success in his career overall. Obviously started in Colorado, so we'll see if he can bring that over to Boston. And another big one is Garrett Richards from the San Diego Padres. He's a starter, and with Chris Sale out to start the season with Tommy John, he's recovering from that. And then Erod recently got scratched from his opening day start. He's going to start the season on the injured list. That's two key starters, the two best pitchers that Boston's going to be without to start the year. So going to need someone else to step in. So Garrett Richards is a veteran. He's had a lot of experience over his career. So it looks like he'll be able to step in and fill that void with those two pitchers gone to start the year. And then the big subtractions I mentioned earlier, Andrew Benintendi. Beloved left fielders going to Kansas City in a trade. And then Jackie Bradley Jr., I think the greatest Red Sox center fielder of all time, sadly, is going to Milwaukee as a free agent. I mean, no one played center fielder better at Fenway than him. Jacoby Ellsbury is probably the only exception. It's between those two. But both those two guys, you know, really loved in Boston. And it's hard to believe that the Red Sox had the best outfield in baseball in 2018 when they won that World Series, and that all changed. I mean, now Mookie and JBJ and Benny, they're all gone. They've left Boston. You know, Mookie obviously in that trade to the Dodgers, and then Benintendi got dealt to Kansas City, and then JBJ goes off as a free agent to Milwaukee. So it's really disappointing to not have any of those guys anymore in the starting lineup or in that outfield. I mean, it was a pleasure to watch when they are all together. So hopefully the Red Sox can form a decent outfield this season. I think they have the pieces, but hopefully they can put it together. So let's see what the outfield looks like for Boston this season. We'll get to that in a bit, but right now I want to go into my predictions and opinions, probably my favorite part of this little segment right here. So we'll start off with the team MVP. And this is an obvious one to me, at least I'm going with Xander Bogarts, the shortstop. I think he's a phenomenal five tool player. That is, I think, in my opinion, the key leader in this clubhouse. I think when you lose guys like Mookie Betts and then when Dustin Pedroia retired, I think it's up to Bogarts to step up now. And I think he's more than capable of doing that. He's got two World Series under his belt, so he definitely has that leadership factor. And then I just think he's the most talented player on the roster, not only defensively, but offensively as well. I think he's the best shortstop in baseball, and I know that Carlos Correa and Francisco Lindor are right there with him. But if we're talking about longevity and just range and just overall greatness, I think Bogarts trumps those two because he's more likely than not to play almost every game of the season. He doesn't commit many errors at all. I mean, he's a really polished player. Watching him grow has been phenomenal. I think he's going to have a monster year for the Sox this year. So I'll go with Bogarts for my team MVP. Next up is the unsung hero. I go with Franchi Cordero, the left fielder. They got him in a trade 
in that Benintendi trade with the Royals. And I think he's just got explosive power at the plate. I think he has the tools to be an everyday left fielder when when he gets fully healthy. Hopefully he starts the season on time. I know he's been recently been playing in spring training, so hopefully that's a good sign for him to play almost every day at Fenway. But considering J.D. struggles in the outfield and he's primarily a DH, I think it's a good option to put Cordero and left and I think he's just going to pound the ball this season we've seen he's got a lot of power in spring training as he had a monster shot the other day so I think he'll be a a valuable addition that comes out of this Benintendi trade hopefully can make up for not having Benintendi in left field my home run leader I'm going with Bobby Dahlback the third baseman he's got eight RBI eight home runs rather and 16 RBIs in spring training it seems like all he does is just hit massive home runs, and he's just going to put a lot of balls on Lansdowne Street this season. I think he's just going to pound the ball continuously this season for Boston. Can't wait to watch him just crush it with the Sox this season. Next up here on this season preview, RBI leader. I'm going with J.D. Martinez, the left fielder and DH. I think J.D. is going to bounce back after a rough year last season. I think he's still an excellent hitter, no doubt about that. He can hit the ball anywhere. He's very dynamic at the plate, and I think his consistency is going to be key this season. So I think he's going to have a pretty steady year for the Sox. Next up, I think Michael Chavis, the first baseman, is going to have a make-or-break season. He seems like the odd man out here in Boston. Bloom keeps adding infielders to kind of ensure that Chavis is really going to have to fight for that spot at first base. And I think he's just his time is running out to succeed. He constantly strikes out the plate. So if he doesn't pan out this year, I think he's going to be out the door in a hurry. I don't think anything is stopping Heim Bloom from letting Chavis walk if he doesn't show up this season. Next up, the most exciting newcomer. I'm going with Kike Hernandez, the second baseman. I think he brings a lot of flair and excitement to the game. I think this is the best second baseman the Red Sox have had since Dustin Pedroia. That's how highly I think of this guy. I think he's very versatile. I think he can play almost anywhere on the field, almost like Brock Holt, where he could play any position when he is with Boston. So I think Kike is a similar player to Brock Holt, and I can't wait to see him play this year. Next up, we got the ace of the pitching staff. I got to go with Erod Eduardo Rodriguez. I think Since Chris Sale's season seems kind of in jeopardy right now, since he's recovering from Tommy John, I think Erod is going to have to really bring his A game. I know he's starting the year injured, but if he can kind of recover quickly and pitch the way he did before he missed last season, obviously he missed due to COVID complications, but if he can pitch like he did the year before, I think he was a 20-game winner that season. If he can pitch like that, then... I think he's going to have an AL Cy Young caliber season. I think he has grown so much since he started here in Boston. He has evolved quickly, and I think he's going to have a tremendous year, hopefully, for the Red Sox. Next up, the underrated pitcher. I'm going with Nick Pavetta, the reliever, who can also be a starter. But I think he stepped in nicely after being traded from Philly last summer. I think, he, yeah, he can start or pitch out of the bullpen, brings a lot of depth to this pitching staff, which there is none really. So I think he's really going to have to log some innings this year to help this team out. Next up, my breakout star is going to be Hunter Renfro, the right fielder. I think he's used to playing in Fenway's tricky right field as a member of the Tampa Bay Rays. 
He can be just a dominant home run hitter. He can hit the ball all over the yard, not just home runs. So I think he's really going to be an effective offensive weapon for the for the Red Sox this year. Can't wait to see him out there in right field. So Hunter Renfro is going to be my breakout star for Boston. And then my minor leaguer to watch to cap off th- these picks, and they'll go into the lineup and the rotation. But I'm going to go with Jaron Duran. He's a second baseman and center fielder. In spring training, he's hitting 316 with two homers, three doubles, one triple, and six RBIs. I think he's going to be a great option to call up if anyone in the starting lineup gets hurt at some point. We'll see if he makes the roster for Boston, but even if he goes to Worcester, I think he can call up and get called up and really make an impact. I think, obviously, being able to play two positions is helpful, and considering the Red Sox don't have a ton of outfield depth, he can be a really great option for Boston to call up at some point if Alex Cora wants to bring him up to the big league. So I like Jaron Duran. I think he's going to be a phenomenal player for years to come. Hopefully we can maybe see him in some action this year at Fenway Park. But that's going to do it for those little picks right there. And next up, we're going to move on to what I think is going to be the potential starting lineup and rotation of the Red Sox this year. So we're going to start out with the infield here, moving from first base to third base. At first, I'm going to go with Bobby Dahlback. At second, I'll go with Kike Hernandez. At shortstop, Xander Bogarts. And third base, Rafael Devers. This seems like kind of the consensus right now. I think one swap could be maybe Marvin Gonzalez for Bobby Dahlback. But I think Cora really wants Dahlback to be an everyday player. Although having Marvin Gonzalez is really going to help. I, I think he really brings some much-needed de- depth. Could be a nice little backup addition in the infield for Boston. But I think that's what the infield is going to be. The only probably question is first base. But I think second, short, and third. I think Kike, Xander, and Rafael. I think those are pretty set in stone for the infield there for the Red Sox. In the outfield, I'll go with Franchi Cordero in left field. Alex Verdugo in center field, and then Hunter Renfro in right field. It does seem like Verdugo and Renfro have center and right field locked up, but left field could be a question mark. You have JD, and then you also have Franchi Cordero, and then even Michael Chavis maybe could play left field. He doesn't seem like a left fielder, but there's talks of maybe moving him to the outfield, but I think Cordero couldn't be an outfielder for this team, so I'll throw him in left field. And then catching... Christian Vasquez, there's no question about that. He's going to be the catcher on opening day unless he somehow can't play. But Vasquez is going to be the catcher pretty much every day for this Red Sox team. And then for DH, I'll go J.D. Martinez. I mean, this is seems likely this is the position I think he'd prefer to play. I think he's much better when he's DHing instead of playing the outfield. But J.D. is one of the best hitters in baseball, and as DH, I think he can prove that this year. All right, so now moving on to the starting rotation here for the Red Sox. And for this one, I'm going to include Erod in there, even though he's injured right now, and then exclude Sale because we don't know when he's going to return. He is throwing, which is a good sign, but obviously taking some time to recover from Tommy John's surgery. But Erod's going to be the number one when he returns. He was slated to be the opening day starter, but then he got hurt, and then Evaldi to step in there. So Evaldi at two, and then Garrett Richards, Martin Perez, and I think Nick Pavetta could be in there at some point. I, it, it, you know, it could go either way. You have Matt Andrees in there as well, who came into this team as an addition, but 
I think Pavetta can be a starter. I, I really think he is much better in that role. Obviously, he can't come out of the bullpen, but I still like Pavetta in there to start for Boston. So we pretty much know it's going to be these five until Chris Sale comes back, and then it seems like Pavetta goes to the pen. But obviously, the order is still to be determined, but this is what I think it is going to be here for the Sox. And then my top three relief pitchers. For my number one, I'm going with Adam Adovino. My number two will be Matt Barnes. And then my number three will be Phillips Valdez. I think Adovino proved he could be a solid reliever in New York at times. And I think he can somehow get on the right track here in Boston. I think he's going to be a great closer. I feel like he should be in that role here for the Sox. And then Barnes is on the COVID list right now. But I think when he returns, he's going to log a lot of innings because he's a veteran. He's a staple of that Red Sox bullpen. So Matt Barnes is going to be solid, hopefully, this year. And then Valdez was kind of quietly that unsung hero of the Sox pen last year, and he provided some much-needed relief. So I think he's really going to help the pitching staff again this season here in Boston. Well, that's going to do it for the predictions part of the Red Sox preview to wrap things up. I know this is going to be a long, grueling season for the Red Sox, but after going through months of no sports at the beginning of COVID, we should all be so grateful that we get to witness a full 162 this year, even if the product on the field isn't the greatest. There's a lot of unknowns about the future of the Red Sox, including Bloom's job security. I mean, because the Red Sox once had the best outfield in all of baseball a couple of years ago with JBJ, Mookie, and Benny, but that has been dismantled. This team has been reconstructed a lot since that World Series championship team, and they're in a weird rebuild phase where there's also a lot of seasoned veterans, and even their future in Boston might be in question. I mean, Bogarts, Vasquez, J.D., Devers, they're going to have to decide what they want to do long-term with some of these guys. And I know there's a lot of negativity going into this season, as there should be, but the Red Sox are going to be playing meaningful baseball games again. It's not a weird 60-game season like it was last year, and it looks like Fenway's going to allow fans, so there are certainly some positives for this season. I don't really see them having a lot of success this year. I'm hoping for a fourth-place finish in the AL East. And maybe even a third place, and, and, and that would be kind of generous. But opening day is here. We can all finally rejoice, and it is just great to have the Red Sox back in our lives. I know it is for me, but that's going to do it for my preview of the Red Sox season, and we'll have lots more on the team throughout the course of the season. We'll take a quick break and move on to some Bruins talk. All right, so now we move on to the Bruins part of the podcast. I'd like to welcome on special guest, my broadcast partner, Alec D'Arminio, to the show. So, Alec, the Bruins, they've struggled as of late. They have not been playing their best hockey at all, really, but part of that is definitely because of the injury bug. And the Bruins have really been riddled with injuries as of late, especially on the blue line, as Kevin Miller, Brandon Carlo, and John Moore are all out, and and goalie Tukarask is out as well. So the Bruins just can't seem to get out of their own way as many of their players are injured right now. What's going on, Struck? It's good to see you. So 
yeah, these injuries are killing us. Um, obviously, um, Brian Marchand, he's on COVID, and we've got two other players, DeBrusque and Crowley, on COVID. Um, obviously not as an impact as Marshawn has on the top line, but if you're the Bruins right now, you need Carlo Miller and Rask back immediately because, you know, the beginning of the season, defensive end really wasn't a struggle. It was more of the offense, you know, Poshnok was out. At the beginning of the season, Rask was looking good. The defense was playing solid. And now all these lines are being jumbled because of these injuries. Rask is dealing with stuff. And I don't know, it's, it's gone to waste. Definitely. And, and Miller's kind of like the anchor right now on that back end. And he's already had two knee surgeries in his career and broke his kneecap this season. So it seems kind of unlikely for him to return soon. And then Carlo, it, it seems unlikely for him to return soon. He got hit by Tom Wilson, kind of a dirty hit. So he is on back on the ice practicing, but still seems a little unlikely. But the Bruins, it's been a lot of up and down. The lines have been mixed, as you said before. You know, Fredericks had to jump on that top line with Marshan being out on the COVID protocol. So there's been a lot of mixing and matching to try and find this team success, but they really have not been able to find their groove as of late. They, they went on that 10 game point streak in early February, but that ended. And then they've really dug themselves a hole. They've fallen behind a fourth place in the East with 39 points. They trail the, the pens, the Islanders and the Caps. So as of right now, it's not looking good because they would barely sneak into the playoffs in that last spot. Yeah, it doesn't. Based on the way they're playing now, they're not. They're not catching up to the top four teams. Those, you know, Pens, Caps, Isles. Um, you know, they've got a lot of ground to cover. Granted, they have you know four less games played than all those teams, but at the same time, they are seven points away from third place. That's the Penguins. And it's, it's going to be a fight to the playoffs, obviously. The Flyers, who, you know, have been playing, have not been playing their best hockey as of late, they're only three points behind the Bruins. So the Bruins need some mark of consistency through the final stretch because, you know, what they've been putting out these past five, ten games, it's not going to win you, you know, a round or two of the playoffs or get you any success in the long run. No, it definitely won't. And. I mean, the Bruins, they're going to need to get hot. At some point, they're really going to need to find a way to get at least a point or two points every single night. They're not in the greatest position right now. They don't want to end up playing the one seed because that's the Islanders. And they're 0-4 against them this season. They just can't seem to beat the Islanders. They seem to play their worst hockey against the Islanders, and they've really played well against the Caps, the Pens, and the Flyers, but they just can't seem to get a win against the Islanders, and this really could haunt them for the rest of the season because they still have to play them two more times and they can't afford to leave any more points on the table in this against this team, especially in just a sprint to the finish line this season. Yeah. Beating the Islanders would obviously be huge, especially like for confidence that like, cause the Islanders, they, they just feel like one of the most complete teams in the NHL. Like, I don't think their formula is going to win them a Stanley cup. They play solid defensive hockey, you know, five on five play. They dominate. Um, they're a very good hockey team. Obviously, they were in the Eastern Conference Finals last year um, and ended up going through the Capitals and the Flyers to get there. But again, like the Bruins, they have to figure something out. Obviously, they've been playing. I don't know if they were, they're playing up or just down to everyone else. They're just playing up to the Capitals and Penguins. Those have been good games. Um, all the Capitals games they played 
obviously there's a bit of uh, fire in the competition because, uh, you know, their old captain is on the other team. And then Wilson adding a bit of fuel to the fire um, with the hit on Carlo. So they seem to play pretty decent against the Capitals. No complaints there. And the Penguins, for the most part. But the Islanders, they it's brutal because every game they play, it's it's defensive hockey that they can't keep up with because at the end of the game, they're not they're not scoring as the goal they need to do because their offense is just lagging all behind. They are not beating the Islanders, which is something that has to happen before the season ends. And the offense has really been an issue as of late. I think one of the biggest issues for this team is probably their lack of secondary scoring. And the production's been there for the top line. I mean, Pasternak has 14 goals. Marchand has 12 goals. Bergeron has 10 goals. And then even Nick Ritchie's had a solid year with nine goals. And Craig Smith's heating up right now. He's got six goals of his own, but they really need those other contributors. I mean, Coyle only has five this year. DeBrusque has been snake bitten. He's been in and out of the lineup. He only has three goals. Wagner only has two, and then Corrali has two. I mean, Boston, they're really going to need the other guys to step up and provide some scoring because when that first line is having an off night, this team just seems like they're going to get blown out of the building, and, and it really seems like a loss if their first line can't score. That's that's the biggest point because last year, uh, whenever the first line wasn't doing good, it was okay because they had that secondary and third line scoring, which shouldn't like it shouldn't have been an issue this year. It's the same guys. It's basically the same lineup. Um, you know they have the same guys like DeBrusque and Corrali, Coyle, Krejci, like all those guys, second and third line material. They're doing really good this year. I will give Krejci a pass. He has 17 assists. Like he's he's been chipping in. He's really been doing his part, and you notice if he's out there. But those other guys, I don't know if they've been snake bitten or just like not on their game this year. But, you know, they've they're going to need to score some points, which is going to take, you know, pressure off the first line because they've been scoring all our goals for the most part. Um, And that's just something that needs to happen if they're ever going to get anywhere, because the first line can't play the whole game. It's the game of hockey like they're going to get tired at some point. They certainly can't. You need all four lines to be a great team in the league. And then besides the offense and the scoring, I think the the Bruins defense really needs to step up. And I know there's a lot of young guys this year because many have had to step up and elevate the role with the departures of Krug and Chara. When you lose those two back there, it's certainly difficult. But I think some of these guys, their game needs to evolve quickly, like rapidly, if this team wants to be a playoff contender. I know Zaboral and Clifton have shown some promise showed some promise definitely but i think they really can hinder this team's success at times by just taking some unnecessary penalties or not being able to take care of the puck properly i think this decor needs to get healthy but at the same time these young guys really need to step up and it, it's definitely difficult it's no easy task finally getting the, that nhl experience but still i mean defense is huge in the playoffs and they're really going to need to find a way to step up yeah, beginning of the year, the defense was solid because, you know, basically everyone was healthy. They had those great pairings. Um, they had guys like Miller and Lazan playing consistent, consistently on a nightly basis, you know, for as short as that was. And I thought the defense was really good at the beginning of the year. Obviously, the offense struggled. That's why we were playing those close games. Every single game went to overtime. Um, but because now the defense, they've you know, they have holes now. They've got those injuries. 
those guys, those lines are all mixing up. They don't know who they're playing with. And, uh, you know, I don't know if it's miscommunication or something. Those young guys, uh, they've obviously got to step it up. Um, it's just because if the offense, the offense has to save them sometimes, which is not good, even though in the beginning of the season, it was mostly the defense saving the offense. And now at this point, the offense doesn't have the material to save the defense. So, it, you know, they're in a bit of a sticky situation here in terms of what they need on defense, as well as like how they can ever upgrade their offense to just keep up with consistent scoring that their opponents put on them nightly. Yeah, we'll see if the offense can finally find their groove and they can get some consistency on the back end, need that defensive core to finally get healthy. I mean, Miller and Carla are two huge additions back there for them on that back end, so we'll see if they can come back soon. But this team probably needs to make a splash at the trade deadline. And with three teams ahead of them right now and all playoff caliber teams, they're going to need someone or a couple of players maybe to, to kind of step up and find a way to get on this team and make an impact. So who do you think are two or maybe a couple of trade deadline targets the Bruins could go after? Early on in the season, uh, I was talking about maybe like trading for a guy like Lucic, um, you know, a line with maybe Frederick Lucic and Nick Ritchie. That's kind of like your fourth line goon line. And obviously like Lucic has been scoring and so is Ritchie which obviously, you know, surprise, you know, welcome surprise for Boston fans, especially because Richie wasn't really doing much last year. Of course, he got here right after the trade deadline and then COVID hit. Uh, but this year he has been scoring goals and Lucic in Calgary, he has been uh, doing his part previously years. He really wasn't doing well. Um, but this year he's been stepping it up and like those guys that can score and especially with a young talent like Frederick, that would be a good fourth line. Lucic is a target, but obviously, but I think at this point, you need a goal scorer like Jack Eichel or any like talent you can get from a team that's awful like Buffalo. Um, cause I, cause Jack Eichel, he, he, there's no way he doesn't want to get out of Buffalo. It's an absolute dumpster fire going on over there. Um, and it doesn't look like they're going to solve any of the problems they have soon. So if you get like a talent like Eichel, someone who can handle himself, he's been in the league for a while. Like that's something you need, that presence in the locker room with someone who's scoring your goals and helping everyone get up. Like you wouldn't even need to be on the top line either. Like you can be like that second line center, you know, third line center. Um, or wing, uh, but again, you need that scoring regardless, especially with the end of the year. Um, the, the defense, I think, is a solid core. They just need to be healthy. So I think that defense can win you a round or two of the playoffs, provided you have a good offense. I think that's what the Bruins see. I think they just need to fix their offense because in the long term, it's going to like their defense is good. They just need to stay healthy. Yeah, I think their defense has shown some promise throughout the course of the year, but I still feel like they probably need a defenseman in the mix to help. And I think Matthias Ekholm from the National Predators, a defenseman, I think could really help them. He's had a lot of experience in the playoffs. So getting a veteran back there can definitely help. He's a steady presence. He's got a rocket shot, and he really helps this team on the blue line. I think if he somehow finds a way in Boston, Nashville has kind of uncharacteristically struggled this year, so I think they might be kind of some sellers at the trade deadline. I think Ekholm is a name that maybe floated out there. And then I like Kyle Palmieri, too, a forward from the New Jersey Devils. We just saw him in the Bruins versus Devils matchup on Sunday, but I really like his game. He seems like a Bruins killer at times, and 
He really finds his way to the net. He's a veteran as well. So I think he can really make an impact and add some offensive firepower. And this team, they're going to need some offensive firepower. I, I get you have the probably the best first line in hockey with Bergeron, Marchand, and Pasternak, but they really haven't had the secondary scoring. It doesn't help when Jake DeBrusque has three goals, and at one point in his career he had 27 goals, and he's really not panning out, especially because in that draft he probably could have had Matthew Barzell. So that's not a very good look, but – I think if the Bruins can add some offense here, get some weapons up there, I think that can definitely help. So that'll do it for a little Bruins talk. We'll end this little segment here with our picks to win the East Division and the Stanley Cup. So where are you going to go with for your top four in the East? Um, top four in the East right now, when this is being recorded, it is Bruins, Penguins, Islanders, Capitals. I think that's going to stay the same. I will. I do say that the Bruins may drop out of that fourth spot somewhere in the middle of this, but I do think they're going to make it. I like, I think they're going to power through. And I think those top four will stay. Um, obviously it's going to be a tough ride for the Bruins. They need to win, you know, a lot of games to get there. They can't just coast into the playoffs. Um, they need that momentum, especially at the end of the season, they're going to be playing Buffalo a lot. Those have to be wins. Um, you got to work for that to get to that even four seed because Pittsburgh right now, would you know have to have a major falling off for you to ever get to that three or second seed discussion? So I think the Capitals. I actually know. I think the Islanders are going to uh, be that one seed. I think the Capitals and Penguins are going to be two and three, and it's going to be Islanders one, Bruins four. Um, and that's I don't know. I think that's just those four teams have been playing pretty good hockey. Obviously, the Bruins have some holes. But those top three teams, they, you know, at least in those top three spots, I don't think the Penguins are going to move much. I think it's going to be a battle between the Islanders and the Caps. Yeah, I think it is as well. I think those are two of the, the best teams in the league right now. I agree with you. I think the Islanders are going to end up winning the division. I think they just can stifle teams with their defensive mastermind, Barry Trotz behind the helm. They do play a very boring defensive style of hockey, but they can light the lamp as well. They can really score. I mean, J.G. Pajot has lit up the Bruins this year. He's got 23 points, and then Matthew Barzell has 25 points. So they lead the charge for that Isles offense that can really show up, and everyone talks about their defense, but their offense can score too. And then I think the Caps will finish in second. They've got a lot of leaders from that Stanley Cup team. I think second place is a pretty good finish for them. I still think the Bruins can get the three spot. I really do. I think the Penguins are going to finish in four because although the Penguins are red hot right now, I think they're due to cool off at some point. I, I think there's a point in every season where Sidney Crosby might go down with injury. I believe Evgeny Malkin's out right now, so that could hurt them. And I, I don't feel like their goaltending is going to sustain for this team. I, I think if Tuka gets healthy for Boston, that's really going to help. When you have a healthy Tuka Rask, I think he's a top five goalie in the league. And then the Penguins, I just don't really trust their goaltending situation. I still think they get in the playoffs, but I just, I'm holding out hope that the Bruins can get hot at some point and they make two or three deals at the deadline that really help this team. And if you're really going to make a deal at the deadline, I think this is the time now. I mean, you have the pieces right now and Bergeron, Krejci, Marchand, Rask. I mean, those guys aren't getting any younger. And you've got Charlie McAvoy in the prime of his career. He's probably going to be a Norris Trophy candidate maybe this year even. I think he's going to end up winning one down the road, maybe three or four years down the road. He's going to win the Norris Trophy. And then Brandon Carlo's a young stud back there. And then Charlie Coyle you have, who's 
in a pretty decent spot in his career. And then Pasternak is probably in the prime of his career right now. So the Bruins have some pieces right now. If they can add to that, if they can play consistent hockey, they can really make a run. I feel like they play well against the Caps. So I think if they could somehow get past this East division, I think anything is possible, but that is no easy task. This is probably the toughest division in all of hockey. But to end this little segment here, we'll end with uh, our picks to win the Stanley Cup at this point in the season. We're a little past the halfway point in the season, but who are, going, who are you going with to win the Stanley Cup? Um, You know, just like you look at the standings here, obviously the Lightning, they're uh, looking pretty good, not going to lie. But uh, honestly, I think this year it's going to come down to at no one in the North Division. I No one in the North Division. I don't think any of those Canadian teams, like the Goldies are brutal in the Canadian Division. And I think that whatever team wins that division in the playoffs, they're going to find a, a hot goalie that someone who's just been on fire for them. Um, and they're going to stop scoring and it's going to end up killing the team because their goalie is not as good. So I'm thinking it's going to be bet- uh, a big race in the West division for between the Avalanche and the Vegas Golden Knights. I honestly think the Stanley Cup is going to come down to, drum roll please, blah, 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 the Lightning and the uh, – Stanley Cup final and the Vegas Golden Knights. And I think Vegas is going to win it this time. I think that the Lightning, they play good, consistent hockey. Um, and I think they have the power to come out of their division. Obviously, you know, the Hurricanes and the Panthers have been big surprises in that division. Um, but I think the Lightning have what it takes to get there. But I just think that, you know, the Golden Knights, they have it. They, they've got it. They certainly do. They've got a great team with Pacioretty. They got Stone. They got Mark Flurry behind the net. I think it'll come down to those two teams, but I'm going to go with the Tampa Bay Lightning. As of right now, they're tied for the league lead in points. As much as it pains me to say it, I, I just can't stand the Lightning, but I really do believe they can win back-to-back Stanley Cups. I just don't see any team stopping them because they're still so explosive offensively. Steven Samkos has been superb after being injured in their playoff run last season. He's got 31 points with 16 goals and five assists. And then you've got Andre Palat and Braden Point are also 30-point scorers. So the Bolts clearly have enough offensive firepower, even without Kucherov, which is pretty impressive. And then Victor Hedman leads the team in points as a defenseman. He's got 33 points and 27 assists, which is just insane. I mean, he's probably going to win the Norris again. He's the anchor on that back end. So I think it's going to be very difficult for opposing teams to score against this team with him back there. And then you've got Vasilevsky to deal with, who's, I think, the best goalie on the planet right now. I mean, his record is insane. It's 21-4-1 on the season. He seems unstoppable. I think this team has both experience and longevity from their great cup run last year in the bubble. So I think they can bring it again this year. I think they're used to winning in this type of environment. So I think that helps them. I, I really don't want them to win because I can't stand the lightning at all. But I, I just realistically speaking, I, I don't really see any team stopping them right now. Yeah, I'm just hoping that the lightning get high off their own power and blow it the way they did against the Blue Jackets, you know, in that round one after they won the President's Trophy and got swept. But, you know, can't have good things all the time. So. I still think the Golden Knights have, obviously, you know, Marc-Andre Fleury and Ro- Ro- Rogan Leonard, um, those guys were killing in the playoffs last year. And you got guys like Mark Stone who have like been on the team since it was formed 
that, you know, they're giving it the push that they need and they've been good the whole time. They haven't had a bad season. Um, obviously the ups and downs, the cup finals loss, you know, um, the collapse against the Sharks. And uh, I, I, I still think they're a team that's uh, ready to face adversity when it comes. And I think those third and fourth rounds for them are going to be tough, but I still think they can pull it off. We'll see what happens as the season closes out, but that's going to do it. Hopefully the Bruins can turn it around here soon, but thanks for coming on the show, Alec, and we'll have more on this podcast coming up shortly. All right. See you, Stroke. We now go to the Celtics, who have pretty much been the definition of a dumpster fire this season. The Seas are currently 23-24 and 24 on the season, as this is being recorded, and have struggled to find really any sort of consistency throughout the season. I mean, they are currently the seventh seed in the East for the playoffs if the season were to end today, which is kind of unacceptable, considering how much talent is on this roster. I mean, this team has so much talent. They don't have a lot of depth, but they do have some scoring. When you have Jason Tatum, who's a perennial all-star, he's going to be at least, he's already made the all-star team a couple times. He's averaging 25.3 points per game, is an all-star this year. And then you got another all-star, Jalen Brown, who's averaging 24.5 points per game. Kemba Walker is your starting point guard. He's been on and off this year. He's kind of been injured. Hasn't been that consistent, but even with that going on, he's still averaging 18.2 points per game. And then Marcus Smart is, I think, one of the best leaders on the team. He's got 13 points per game. I know he's got some locker room issues, but I mean, no one really hustles more than this guy. I think he's got the most heart on this team. So when you have those guys as the core leaders and those key offensive pieces, it's kind of hard to understand why this team is lagging behind all the other contenders in the East. And just looking at the other teams that are ahead of the Celtics, Boston clearly has just so much more talent and experience than any of these three teams that they're behind in the standings. And if you were to tell me that these three teams are ahead of the Celtics in the East before the season started, I would have told you you were crazy. It's insane to believe that the Charlotte Hornets, I knew they were going to be a good team, but I thought they were going to be in that seven to eight seed range. They're number four right now. This is a young team with a lot of talent. They've got a couple former Celtics and Gordon Hayward and Terry Rozier. have been very good this year, but they don't have Lamella Ball for the rest of the year. And he's been kind of that key offensive piece for that team. One of their leading scorers, probably rookie of the year if he hadn't gotten hurt. And I think Boston just has to take advantage of that because Charlotte's bound to cool off at some point. I don't think they're going to sustain the success they've had so far. So if you could hop ahead of them at that at any point or take advantage of those games when you play them, that can really help this team. And then the Knicks, I mean, Julius Randle can't really carry this team forever. He's aging. I know Quickly and Toppin are both young studs. They're going to have some very bright futures in this league, but the Knicks are still not an experienced team. I mean, the Knicks are the Knicks. They're bound to bottom out at some point. They might still make the playoffs because the East is not that great this year. You've got, you know, the powerhouses in Milwaukee, Brooklyn, and Philly, and then it kind of trails off from there. I mean, the Heat 
will probably get hot at some point. It's hard to imagine them not getting hot when you have Jimmy Butler, Duncan Robinson, Tyler Hero, those guys who were key in the bubble last year in that NBA Finals run. And then they just acquired Victor Oladipo at the trade deadline. I mean, Butler and Oladipo, that's a pretty deadly duo right there. And then looking at the sixth seed right now, the Atlanta Hawks. I mean, Trey Young, he's one of the best point guards in the league, no doubt. He's got unlimited range. He's got great ball handling skills. He's going to be great for years to come, a perennial all-star. But he's a little bit of a selfish player. He doesn't make everyone around him better. They've got a great shooter in Gallinari, but who knows if this team has enough offense to keep up with all the these other teams in the East. So I don't know if I really trust all three of those teams. I don't trust the Celtics right now, but I think the Celtics have a much better overall team than those three combined. And the Celtics are, they're just more capable of passing all three of these teams in the standings if they can somehow get hot and go on a run. But they have just no time to lose. There's only about 25 games left in the season. So there's very little margin for error. There's no time to continue to lose games they shouldn't. I don't see them passing either the Sixers, the Nets, or the Bucks. I think the Sixers have too much with Embiid and Simmons. They've got some great shooters on that team. And then the Nets, I mean, when you pair KD, Kyrie, James Harden, Blake Griffin, and they just got LaMarcus Aldridge, if everyone stays healthy on that team, that's the best team in the Easter Conference, no doubt. And if they can gel together, no team stopping Brooklyn. I mean, that team's a powerhouse right now. And then the Bucks have a great team. Giannis looks like he can make another run at the MVP. Chris Middleton is a stud on that team, and he terrorizes the Celtics. So all three of those teams are very deep. They have a lot of guys down low that can just feast down low. They've got great shooting from the perimeter. So those three teams are exceptionally good in the Eastern Conference. But then it's it's totally up for debate how those other five teams finish out. And the Celtics should definitely be towards the top of the East right now. And despite that the, the Hornets, the Knicks, and Hawks are kind of having some surprising seasons, it just doesn't seem to me like they can sustain that success. I think they're just bound to cool off at some point in the season. I don't think the season they're having right now is going to last the whole year. But hopefully the season can turn around and... One thing to look out for, they need some production from their bench. And when I'm looking at the bench, I know that Peyton Pritchard is great. He's going to be a huge factor, but they need other guys as well. Grant Williams can step in, but he needs to start scoring. Tristan Thompson has been a big disappointment this year. You don't have Daniel Tice, which I don't know if he should have traded him. And you only got Mo Wagner, who's decent. He's not really helping this team that much. He had a decent game the other night against the Bucs, but... I don't know if Mo Wagner was the answer for getting rid of Daniel Tice. I thought Tice played hard. He was always pretty consistent for the most part. He took some bad three-pointers, but always was a pretty good presence down low for this team. But the Celtics need some production out of their acquisitions from the trade deadline. But that's really not looking good right now. I mean, Evan Fournier from the Orlando Magic had a really rough night against the Pelicans on Monday in his Boston debut, probably because he was wearing number 94, which is kind of unheard of in basketball. But he went 0 for 10 from the field and 0 for 5 from 3 for 0 points on the night. And he was proclaimed to be this great 3-point shooter, and he was not. I hope that was a one-time deal. I hope he turns it around soon because this Celtics team needs so much more depth and Fournier can be such a very valuable addition. I mean, they only gave up two second-round picks which is not too bad in the grand scheme of things. So it looks like he's going to be a great addition. Hopefully he can turn around after that rough night. 
And we'll see if he can be the player that Danny Ainge envisioned. I, I think he can. I think he just had one off night. So I don't think you can blame him for shooting that poorly. I mean, I hope I hope he can turn it around. I, I don't know if, you know, he was the player that we thought he was going to be. We'll see about that. We'll see if it was all hype. But I think Fournier is still a great NBA player and hopefully he can help this Boston Celtics team out. But that's going to wrap up our Celtics update. We'll wrap up today's show with a look ahead to the final four we're going to finish up today's show with a look ahead to the final four in indianapolis at lucas oil stadium as the elite eight finish up on monday and tuesday for our two matchups we have on saturday the third number two houston against number one baylor and then our other matchup Includes number one Gonzaga against number 11 UCLA. That's also on Saturday. So looking at the Houston and Baylor matchup, Houston took down a great number 12 seed Oregon State. It was on a great run, but that ended against the Cougars in the Elite Eight. Houston, they're a great offensive rebounding team. They really pound the glass down low. They play some stout defense that's really hard to score against. And they played all double-digit seeds and routes to the Final Four, which is kind of unheard of as a number two seed. This will be their first legitimate test of the tournament. So we'll see what they're made of. And they've got a really tough matchup. They've got a tough draw in the Final Four facing Baylor, who took down number three, Arkansas, in the Elite Eight. Baylor's got Macy Teague, Jared Butler, and Davion Mitchell. Those three form arguably the best trio of guards in the country. They're very explosive. This team has such a great offense, but they can play great defense as well. So this is a very well-rounded team. And my pick for this game is going to be Baylor. I know Houston plays excellent defense, but I don't think they're going to have enough offense to match up well against Baylor. They've kind of struggled to score in some of these games, and this game is not going to be a defensive stalemate, so that really doesn't benefit Houston. The Bears, they can just light up teams with that incredible offensive attack. They've got great guards, so I think that propels them to a win, and they can make it to the national championship. But I I do think this is going to be a dogfight. It's going to be a really evenly matched game, but I think Baylor comes out close in a tight game. Moving on to the Gonzaga-UCLA matchup. UCLA, they've had an unprecedented run to the Final Four. They took down number one seed Michigan in the Elite Eight. This is the Cinderella story of the tournament. Even though they're a Power Five team, they're considered a blue blood. They're the first number 11 seed to reach the Final Four after playing in the play-in round, in the, which they played Michigan State since VCU, who did it in 2011. And this is really one of the most impressive Final Four runs in the history of tournament. It's been a pleasure to watch UCLA make it all the way to the Final Four. They're an incredibly fun team to watch, coached by Mick Cronin. They knocked off number two Alabama in the Sweet 16, which that was a thrilling OT game. So it's definitely going to be a battle, but Gonzaga is going to be a tough matchup so it might not end up being a battle because Gonzaga is that good the Zags have coasted their way to the final four as no team has come close to giving them a fight in some games it's been close but then Gonzaga can go on a 15-0 run they can put up 20 easy Gonzaga can control the pace of the game so well this is definitely one of the greatest college basketball teams of all time. They've got a 30-0 record. They're looking to cap off a perfect season, and they can definitely cement their legacy with a national championship. So my pick in this one, no surprise here, I'm going with Gonzaga. I think the Zags are going to 
demolish UCLA in this game. I love UCLA's run. They've had a remarkable run. And Mick Cronin, he's one of my favorite coaches in the tournament. But I think their Cinderella run ends here for the Bruins. I think the clock's going to strike midnight because they are just not going to be able to keep up with Gonzaga. I mean, Kispert and Timmy can just feast down low. And then you've got Suggs and Nemhart and Ayayi as well. They're all so dynamic on that offensive attack for the Bulldogs. So I like Gonzaga in this one. There's just too much firepower for UCLA to handle in this one. So then if that holds up, it looks like we'll have a Gonzaga versus Baylor national championship. And if that were to happen, I'd have to go with Gonzaga. I think this is going to be their toughest game of the entire season, but this Gonzaga team, they're just a well-oiled machine that may be just one of the greatest college basketball teams we've ever seen. They can run teams out of the gym. I think they can expose Baylor in this game. Gonzaga plays solid offensively and defensively. They're such a well-rounded team. I think they play more as a team than Baylor because Baylor just, to me, seems like a bunch of athletes put together. They're a bunch of individuals, while Gonzaga is a fully functioning team. Everyone's always making each other better. They have more depth. So I like Gonzaga to win the national championship. They're the best team in the field, and they're going to prove it this weekend. But we'll see what happens in the national championship in the final four. The national championship will be on Monday night, and obviously the final four will be on Saturday. So we'll recap everything that happens this weekend in college basketball. It's one of the best weekends of the year. So I can't wait for that, and I can guarantee that every college basketball fan can't wait for this weekend. Now for the rest of the show. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Strucky Sports Talk. Be sure to follow the Instagram account for this podcast. That's at Strucky's underscore sports underscore talk, all lowercase letters, where all the episodes are posted. You can get all the up-to-date news on the podcast. I'm back and better than ever here on Strucky Sports Talk, and this show has really grown since the beginning, so expect some high-quality episodes with some great interviews in the future. If you haven't gotten a chance to, you should definitely listen to my last two episodes where I had Mary-Kate McGuire and Cole Swider on the show. So look forward to some interviews like that in the near future. But thanks for tuning into this episode. Obviously, thanks for Alec for coming on the show today. And stay tuned for a brand new episode next week. This has been Strucky signing off. (laughs) 